Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Well, good morning, Northeast Christian Church. Every time I get the opportunity to come and share here, I look forward to it. And this weekend is absolutely no exception. Got an email a couple of weeks ago from the office here, and it said, send us a brief bio. And so I just sent off the the bio that I normally send. And it was a couple of days after that that I realized I missed a huge opportunity because here at Northeast, I could have sent you my real bio. And my real bio says that I am Tyler McKenzie's father-in-law. That's good. But better, I am Lindsay McKenzie's dad. And uh, yeah. And better than that, I am Palmer and Larkin and Olson's grandpa. And really, those things are some of the things my wife and I are most thankful for. And it's just awesome to be here with their church family and uh, to share a little bit. And before I, before I jump into it, uh, I saw something beautiful out in the parking lot when I came back from Clifton uh, this morning. And I hate to call something else beautiful when we've just seen those beautiful things that happen in the baptistry. But out in your parking lot, there is a, a Tahoe with a boat behind it. I'm like, somebody here is coming to church before they take off for Memorial Day weekend. You get a jewel in your crown wherever you're at today. I mean, that is a preacher's dream. I almost took a picture of it and posted it. We start a brand new series today. It's called Tell Me a Story. Have you ever heard yourself saying those words, tell me a story? In reality, we say it more than we realize. When we go out to the movies or we watch a movie at home, we're saying, tell me a story. When we pick up a new novel or a book, we're saying, tell me a story. Even when we flip on the news, we're saying, tell me a story. When we get acquainted with people for the first time, even if we don't say it directly, we're saying, tell me your story. We say it when we study history, tell me a story. And we certainly say it when we open up our Bibles, tell me a story, tell me the story. So beginning today, I'd like to invite you to say that every single week as you look at some incredible people and events that are preserved in Scripture to just say throughout this summer series, tell me a story. And I want to say on behalf of Northeast Christian Church, we make no apologies for turning to the great stories of the Bible. It's not fluff. This this deep stuff. These events are part of the essence of God's unfolding revelation. They stand as mileposts for our spiritual journey. And even when we don't realize it, New Testament teachings and doctrines are undergirded by Bible stories and history and happenings. They are integral to our faith. Uh, We tell our kids these stories, but this isn't mere child's play. This is a matter of uh, Bible history. It's a matter of Bible literacy. It's a matter of personal and corporate spiritual formation and discipleship. 
Bible stories actually become part and parcel of, of who we are. And the Apostle Paul realized that when he wrote the book of Romans, and he said in chapter 15, everything that was written in the past was written for our teaching, to teach us, that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So it's my hope that through this summer series, you find some hope. Now, Jesus never wrote a book. More books have been written about him than anyone else who has ever lived, but Jesus never wrote a book. We have no words written down by Jesus that we know of. We have plenty of the words of Jesus that have been written down. That's undeniable, but no words that we know of written down by Jesus. He is the Word of God in the flesh, but not a single book of the Bible is written by Jesus. And I agree with the anonymous author who said if he had written them down, the scroll on which he wrote them probably would have become an object of worship, an idol, and people would have elevated it to the neglect of the rest of the Bible. But surely, Jesus wrote something our story, our scripture today is one of the only times we ever see Jesus writing. It's brief. I'll just read it. John chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and sat down. he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand in front of the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a, a basis for accusing him. Here it comes. But Jesus bent down, and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down, and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And, and Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Are you wondering what I'm wondering? What in the world did Jesus write on the ground? We'll get to that in a few minutes, but first, a little backstory. I want you to know as we look at this story that there are some manuscripts, early manuscripts, that omit this story. In fact, there's a good chance if you look in John chapter 8 in your own Bible, you'll see some italicized words to the effect that many of the ancient manuscripts do not include these first eight chapters, eight verses in this chapter of John. And what that simply means is that some of the earliest manuscripts available don't include this story. And so, scholars debate as to why some do and why some don't. And they ask questions like, should this even be in, in John's gospel? And that's not a reason for us to miss 
this well-attested beloved story in Jesus' life and ministry because this story is so Jesus. But I wanted to acknowledge as we began that some of the manuscripts omit this story. It kind of reminds me of what's said in the very end of the Gospel of John, one of my favorite verses in John chapter 21, verse 24. It says, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. And we know that his testimony is true. And Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So instead of spending our time on that textual question, as important as it is, we want to look at the account itself. We want to see the story. And I want you to also know as we begin that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, they exploited this story. This story took place first thing in the morning. Did you notice that? At dawn, sometime in the wee hours of the woman uh, of the night they had caught this woman in the act of adultery and they brought her in they dragged her in and they made her stand before this group of religious leaders and they told on her in detail and they tried to incite a trial and an execution they saw an opportunity to spin their narrative and promote their agenda and they jumped all over it you know some people just use people and some people just use sinners, like politicians who use people and stories as props for their own power agenda. You might think of some State of the Union address moments, or even preachers who need a cheap laugh and want to make ourselves look good, or those who want to ridicule someone to make their own point. At one point, Jesus told these religious leaders, you don't practice what you preach. You bind heavy loads on other people, but you don't lift a finger to carry them yourselves. You keep all the minutiae of the law. You miss what really matters. You slam the door of heaven in people's face, and you keep people out. You look good on the outside, but you're filthy on the inside. You're like those marble whitewashed tombs, and inside you're full of dead men's bones. You're hypocrites and you're snakes, always exalting yourself. Yeah, Jesus said that, not here in John 9, but in Matthew 23. These leaders, as they're exploiting this story, they don't care about this woman. They don't care about the truth. And they don't care about the most obvious question, where is the man? The last I heard, it takes two. And their attitude reminds me of a self-righteous attitude of this 30-year-old guy I read about the other day who made $50 million last year. And he's pretty proud of himself. And he's been bragging about his strategy, telling other people how to become rich. So he shared it on social media for all to see. You might want to take notes on this. Five keys to success. Number one, wake up at 6 a.m. daily. Number two, read one book a week. Number three, work out at least two times daily. Number four, inherit $50 million trust fund from your father at 30 years of age. Number five, drink a gallon of water daily. I mean, do the work and anything's possible. That's the way these Pharisees are. We have arrived. We're special. We do everything right. You do everything wrong. And they're just exploiting the story because if they say the law of Moses says we should stone such a woman, Jesus, what do you say? And Jesus doesn't say you should stone her. Then they'll say, ah, Jesus, you don't believe the Bible. Solomon would have a word for these leaders in Proverbs all of a person's ways seem pure to them, but the motives are weighed by the Lord. Later in Proverbs chapter 21, a person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. In Proverbs 30, 
speaks of those who are pure in their own eyes, yet they are not cleansed of their filth. In his book, Mirror Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, if, if anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity, that sexual sin, as the supreme vice, they are quite wrong. The, the sins of the flesh are bad, but they're not the worst of all sins. All the worst pleasures, he says, are purely spiritual, the pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting and the pleasures of power and hatred. He continues, for there are two bad things inside of me. They are the animal self and the diabolical self, and the diabolical self is the worst of the two. And that's why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But, of course, he concludes, it is better to be neither. These Pharisees, they don't care about the woman. They're just exploiting the story. But this woman, she lived the story. Imagine being caught at your worst moment. Imagine the shame of it, especially in that day, being dragged past everyone, dragged into a religious gathering, made to stand in front of the crowd. I mean... 90% of people, their number one phobia, their number one fear is standing in front of people. Imagine that multiplied by standing in front of people in this situation. She's being publicly shamed. She's being threatened. This is a lynch mob that is ready to pounce. And nobody asks, how does she get there? And where's the man? And what did her family think? Did she even have a family? Did she have anybody that cared anything about her? And, and why did she do this? What led her to this? What was her background? What, what series of cascading situations and decisions brought her to this point? She lived the story. Attempts have been made to identify her with other characters in Scripture, but there's no real connection to be made. And maybe we don't know her name because God mercifully left her unnamed. There's a picture to appear on the screen here. I ask you, why, why is this man's face covered? Have you seen the pictures of defendants in a courtroom or walking into the courtroom and they hide their face in shame? They don't want to be seen. This guy's 93 years old. He's a former guard, Nazi guard during the Holocaust. And he's recently been found guilty of accessory to the murder of 5,232 people in a Nazi concentration camp when he was just 17 years of age. He didn't actually commit the murders, but he was one of the guards up in the tower that wouldn't allow anyone to escape from the camp. And after all these years, he has finally come to justice and been convicted of accessory to murder. And I'm not defending him in any way today. When I ask you to do something, and I hesitate to ask this because it can't, it's not always healthy, but it can be. But just for a moment, would you imagine your worst, most shameful moment? That thing you don't want anybody to know, that thing that you've never told anybody. And if you're married, maybe you've never even told your, your spouse, but now it's... Now it's public. You know, one of those moments when you know it happened, but it's like, I can't believe that was even me. Somebody has well said, if the inner thoughts of a person were written on their forehead, they would never take their hat off. The psalmist said, if you, O Lord, kept 
a record of wrongs, who could stand? We don't know how she got here, but we do know that this woman lived this story. It was, it was her story. But as we make our way through the story, we find out also that Jesus always knows the whole story. And I would remind you today that Jesus knows your story. He knows your whole story. We don't have to journey very far through the New Testament to see that. Matthew 9, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Matthew 22, Jesus knowing their evil intent. Luke 9, 47, Jesus knowing their thoughts. Luke 6, 15, Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force. John 18, 4, Jesus knowing that all, all the things that were going to happen to him went out and asked, who is it that you want? In fact, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, it says Jesus himself on his part was not making himself known to anyone because he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knowing, Jesus knowing, Jesus knowing, Jesus knowing. Jesus always knows the whole story. Jesus knows your whole story. He knows what wakes you up and keeps you up at night. He knows those cascading thoughts that are in your mind. He knows what triggers your anger and your anxiety. He knows how you feel when you ricochet through life and you look at other people and you think maybe they have it all together or how come they don't uh, experience inside their minds what I experience. He knows everything that is going through your mind and heart. He always knows the whole story, which brings us back to the only time we ever see Jesus writing something. Verse 6, Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. What did he right. What did the one who knows everything right? So many possibilities, so many suggestions. Doodling for dramatic pause? I don't think so. Did he just write down an Old Testament scripture, maybe like Jeremiah 17, 13, oh Lord, you're the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Did he write a scripture? Did he write the Old Testament scripture from the law that said if someone was caught in adultery that both parties were to be punished, not just the female? Did he write down the name of the man who was involved? Was the man in the crowd? Was he one of their number? Were they protecting their buddy? Ray Steadman says, my guess is that he wrote the four words written once before by the finger of God in the history of Israel. In the book of Daniel, there was this story of this wicked king named King Belshazzar. He put on a great drunken feast and actually took some of the holy vessels out of the temple and they had a drunken party drinking out of the holy vessels that were only to be used for that holy purpose. And right in the middle of the banquet, a disembodied hand appeared for all to see, writing a message on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharison. 
He didn't understand what those Persian words meant, but all of a sudden this drunken king was stone cold sober. And he starts asking his magicians and his wise men around him to translate the words and they can't do it. And so he calls for Daniel because Daniel can always translate. And he said, would you interpret these words for me? And Daniel said, yes, I will. But first, king, you know the wicked things that your father did and you have continued in your father's tradition and you have defiled the temple of God today. You haven't learned anything from the mistakes your father made and the punishment that he endured. And so, yes, I will interpret these words for you. Here is what it says. You are weighed in the balances and found wanting. Those religious leaders would have known those words. Is that what Jesus wrote in the sand? Or did he just write down their secrets and their private sins? Did he write down the names of their mistresses and liaisons? Did he give secret information that made them know that he knew? Whatever he wrote, it had a powerful effect because verse 9 says, At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Listen, when you start comparing righteousness with everybody else, only Jesus is left because only Jesus is perfectly righteous. And he knew her whole story, and he said to her, where are your accusers? Is anyone left? And she said, no one. But look at it again. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. You ever notice that? Nobody stayed around to throw a stone. They, they went away one at a time, but the older ones left first. Why did the old guys leave first? Oh, and by the way, speaking of old guys... I, you know, there's no secrets. Everything's on the internet all, all the time. I don't know why Tyler thought he could get away with it. He, he introduced this summer series here at Northeast, and he kind of apologized that the first segment of it would be the grumpy old men. <laughs> grumpy old men. I've never been called an old man. And he called Bob Cherry a grumpy old man. And he called his dad a grumpy old man. And he called me his father-in-law. A grumpy old man? I won't forget that for a while. <laughs> but back to the old guys. Why'd the old guys leave first? David, David Faust says, we can only guess what was in their hearts, but it's clear that something caught the minds and hearts and the consciences of the older men and tugged at their hearts, and they were the first to leave. And he suggests, could it be that the older we get, the more we recognize our own sinfulness and depravity, and the more we recognize our inability to condemn someone else. Because Jesus knows the whole story. Now, it's a great story, but we do miss parts of the story. Look at verse 10. Jesus straightened up and said, Women, uh, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Now, listen. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, we miss parts of this. Uh, we get the, he that is without sin cast the first stone. You know, those who live in glass houses, they don't throw stones. But there's a second part too. Go now and leave your life of sin. So some of us miss the first part. We're only too willing to point the finger at everybody else. And we don't hear Jesus say, let him without sin cast the first stone. 
But some of us missed the second part. Jesus said, go now and leave your life of sin. The Pharisees missed both parts. I've been preaching at the church where I preach now for 35 years, and over those years, I've seen this, what I call a trifecta of Scripture misuse. Verses, three verses that everybody knows. Everybody knows this half a verse, neither do I condemn you. Everybody knows, and you could finish it for me, judge not that you be not judged. And everybody knows God is love. But we don't read what follows. We don't read that you'll know them by your fruit. We don't read that the same guy that said God is love also said this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. We don't go on and read in the book of Revelation where Jesus says, those whom I love, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here's what I'm trying to say. We aren't doing anyone any favors and we aren't doing ourselves any favors when we gloss over the seriousness of sin with cheap grace because Jesus calls us to grace and repentance and to life transformation. He loves us too much to leave us the way that we are. See, Jesus knows the whole story, but Jesus wants to change your story. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You know what they called Jesus when he walked on this earth? Luke 7, 34. Jesus said, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They called Jesus a friend of sinners, and that he was. Matthew says it too. Matthew 9, 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and and sinners, and I'm hearing this, Jesus said, it's, it's, not the, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. Go, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, some of us maybe are hearing the gospel for the first time, but many of us have heard bits and pieces or all of the gospel many times, and we understand that we are guilty sinners and that Jesus died for our sins and that he took our place, he took our punishment, and that we are pronounced not guilty because of the sacrifice of Jesus. We understand that Jesus removes our guilt, but what we get mixed up is we get shame and guilt mixed up, and so we understand the guilt is gone, but we still live with the shame. And we don't realize that Jesus not only wants to take our guilt, but he wants to take our shame. Be of sin the double cure, saved from wrath and Satan's power. Imagine being this woman after Jesus rescues you, but you have to go back to town later and everybody knows. Jesus wanted to take her guilt and her shame. He wanted to change her story. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthian church, he, he, he names this big, long list of catalogs of sin. And you might say, well, those are some of the worst sins that a person could possibly commit when you read this catalog of sins. And talking to the Corinthian church, he names off those list of terrible sins. And then he says to the church, such were some of you, but... You've been washed and you've been sanctified. When you become a Christian, you become a new creature. Jesus wants to take away your guilt and shame. Uh, years ago, I heard a counselor say something. 
This counselor said, there are things that are true about a person, and then there is the truth about a person. There are things that are true about a person, then there's the truth about a person. See, there are things that are true about me. They happened. They're in my history. I did them. I can't change that. I might look back on them and say, was that really me? There are things that are true about me, but then there's the truth about me. There are things that are true about you, but then there is the truth about you. And Jesus wants you to see the truth about you. In our church, we have a large recovery ministry, and someone might walk in and say, hi, my name's Jeff, I'm an alcoholic, and the reason they do that is to remind themselves to stay vigilant because you could slip back into addiction at any time, but there's also a sense in which they can come and say, hi, my name's Jeff, I am no longer an alcoholic, I am a new creature, Jesus saved me from my guilt and from my shame and from the power of sin. Jesus wants to change your life story. In October 2019, news outlets in America carried a remarkable courtroom drama, the trial of a former Dallas police officer convicted of murder. And at the end, the victim's brother asked the judge's permission to hug the remorseful defendant, and he forgave her. And upon seeing that, the judge herself stepped down from the bench, walked over, hugged the defendant, and gave her her personal Bible. It caused a a big brouhaha, and there were people saying, have you ever seen such a thing where a judge would actually step down from the bench and hug a convicted murderer? Yeah, we've seen something like that. When you go to the next chapter in John chapter 9, it says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus' defense of this woman was not done so that she could keep living a wrong story, but because he wanted to change her story. Maybe you've seen this. Uh, saw this video the other day of a, a shepherd trying to take care of his sheep. It means something to me. It might mean something to you. Anybody here resonate with that? Is that is that like your life at all? When we don't hear Jesus say, go and leave your life of sin, we we end up in the ditch all over again. It's sin that got us into our hopeless situation in the first place, and we want to steer clear of that and follow Jesus. Now, do I have all the answers? No way. Are there things that I haven't figured out yet that trouble me? Yeah, there are. Am I an expert on science and theology and psychology and recovery? Absolutely not. Are there inconsistencies and unhealthy things in my own life? Oh, I promise you that there are. But I know this. I know that Jesus can and he has and he is and he will change my life. And I am convinced of that more than anything else. I know that Jesus is the only way in, through, and out. And I confidently stake my life on his words. 
I, for one, am going to put all my eggs in the Jesus basket. He's the one who was promised. He's the one who changed the course of human history. He's the one who created this universe and holds it all together by the word of his power. He's the only one that ever lived a perfect life. He's the one who was willing to die for us. He's the one who rose again and defeated death. He's the king seated upon his throne. He is the one who made you and the only one who knows how to make you completely healthy and right. And as we proceed in this time of the service to partake of the Lord's Supper and remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, I'd like you to consider a prayer that I put together and maybe... Maybe you'd want to pray it with me. Oh God, to you I cry. Fix my broken. Fill my empty. Calm my raging. Drown my demons. Heal my disease. Help my unbelief. Restore my soul. Help me. Touch my heart. Take my hurt. Open my ears. Hold my hand. Lift me up, set me free, silence my accusers, meet my needs, answer my questions, erase my fears, rebuke my wrong, forgive my sin, search my heart, make me whole, cleanse my way, clear my conscience, guide my steps, renew my mind, carry my burdens, correct my emotions, take my life, feel my suffering, possess my being, be my joy, be my peace, show me love, loose my lips, raise me up, be my Lord, be my everything, satisfy my soul and save me. Let your living water flow down through the hard cracked soil of me and quench my thirst and let your bread be multiplied to fill my empty soul and let your light shine through the darkness that shrouds my heart and illumine me. Reorient my heart and soul and mind to the reality of you and change my story. Lord Jesus, hear the cry of our hearts today. We know the story is all about you. And in your grace, you've invited us in and you change our story. We're so grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.